Hello and thank you for joining us for week five of our Daniel series, Living a Life of Integrity. Hope you're enjoying this series. I know that um, we are actually uh, nearing the end of our eight-week series that's going to explore the key themes in Daniel, the sovereignty of God, the importance of faithfulness in the world, and God's redemptive plan for his people. By focusing primarily on the life of Daniel, we gain a powerful picture of a faithful person and his challenges living in a hostile culture. And so if you will, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to be reading out of the voice paraphrase. There's going to be some commentary mixed in here as well as uh, some scripture, and I will uh, notate the difference. I know that the theme found throughout scripture is that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Nebuchadnezzar is stronger than anyone else, and he knows it in this story. He willingly accepts credit for all that has happened in his life, so God moves decisively to show how insignificant Nebuchadnezzar truly is. It takes little to reduce him to an animal-like state. A wild man living at the margins of humanity, his power and prestige eroded overnight. If one of the greatest kings in history degenerates so completely, what can be done to common folks like us? Seven years of living as an animal go by, however, he finally comes to his senses and God reinstates him. He recognizes the truth of who God is, and he realizes that he needs salvation. So that's where uh, our scripture will pick up in chapter 5, starting at verse 1. A few decades later, the king Belshazzar held a state banquet and invited a thousand of his officials. Now, let's kind of talk about this on the side here for a moment. Um, The regent uh, in Babylonia would stand in for the king and perform his duties while king uh, spent 10 years campaigning abroad. This king was Nabobonesus, and that is he was fighting to expand the kingdom. So in this case, the regent is Nabobonesus' son, Belshazzar. So starting back uh, at verse 3. As he was tasting the wine, he ordered servants to bring in the gold and silver vessels his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem many years earlier. He wanted his officials to join him, his wives and his concubines, in drinking the royal toast for them. A little later, his servants returned carrying the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of the one true God in Jerusalem. The king, his officials, his wives, and his concubines began to drink from the sanctified goblets. As they drank the wine, they offered praise to their idols crafted in gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. And this is where we get to a pretty familiar Scripture, starting in verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a hand, a human hand, appeared and began to write on the plaster of one of the walls lit by a nearby lampstand. The king stood transfixed, watching the hand as it wrote. Then his face changed. He grew pale and began to feel sick. His thoughts frightened him. What was this strange vision? His legs felt weak and wobbly, his knees knocked together. Verse 7, the king cried out to all his servants, ordering them to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldean wise men, and the diviners. And this is what Belshazzar says to the Babylonian wise men. He says, a great reward awaits the first person who can read this writing and tell me what it means. He will be clothed in purple, wear a gold chain around his neck, and ascend in rank and privilege to be the third highest ranking ruler in the kingdom. All of the king's 
purported wise men came toward and to examine the wall, but no one could read the writing or tell the king what it meant. When it became clear that no one of his sages could help him, King Belshazzar became even more frightened. His face grew even paler, and his officials were dumbfounded. Belshazzar's mother, the queen, overheard some of the discussions between the king and his noble guest, so he entered the banquet hall. The king says, sorry, the queen says, long live the king. Do not let this strange incident frighten you or let your face grow pale. Verse 11, need I remind you that there's a gifted man in your kingdom who possesses the spirit of the holy gods. Years ago, in the time of your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was the one who had discovered this insight, this understanding, this wisdom that is like the gods. That is why King Nebuchadnezzar put him in charge of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldean astrologers, and diviners in his kingdom. And here's his name. This man, Daniel, whom King Nebuchadnezzar named Belteshazzar, has special abilities, knowledge, and wisdom. He is able to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems no one else can. So why don't you call for Daniel? He will tell you what the writing means. With no other options, Belshazzar gave the order and Daniel was brought before him. We're getting to the end of this chapter here. Belshazzar says to Daniel, Are you that Daniel I've heard so much about? One of the exiles brought here from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar. I have told you that you possess the spirit of the holy gods, that you have insight, understanding, and exceptional wisdom. Before you arrived, I had wise men and enchanters brought before me to see if they could read this writing on the wall and tell me what it means. And not one of them was able to tell me. But it has been reported to me directly that you can offer an accurate interpretation and solve problems that no one else can. Now I will offer you what I offered to others. And if you read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple, you will wear a gold chain around your neck, and ascend in rank and privilege to be the third highest ranking ruler in the kingdom. And we get an interesting response from Daniel here in chapter 17, and this is really important for us to get this. Keep the gifts for yourself, or else award them to someone. That is up to you. Still, I will agree to read the writing on the wall and to tell you what it means. O king, the most high God gave sovereignty, greatness, honor, and splendor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. God made him so great and powerful that all peoples, regardless of their heritage, their nationality, their language, trembled in fear before him. He did as he pleased, executing or sparing, honoring or shaming anyone he wished. But there came a point when his heart was so proud and his spirit so haughty that he acted arrogantly. He lost his royal throne and was stripped of his royal honor. He was driven away from all that is human, and he took at the base instincts of an animal. He lived in the company of, of wild donkeys and bent over to eat grass like the oxen. Every night the dew of heaven fell heavy on his body and made him wet until he learned the lesson and acknowledged that the Most High God was true sovereign over the earthly kingdom, and he grants authority to anyone he wishes. But even though you know all this, you, Belshazzar, his descendant, have followed in the ways and have not lived humbly. On the contrary, you have risen up against the true Lord of heaven. By demanding that the sacred vessels from the temple be brought to you and having you, your officials, your wives, your concubines, drink from them, you have issued a challenge you cannot win. You have made toasts and offered praise to the idols crafted in silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, idols which you cannot see or hear or know anything at all. 
and you have failed to honor in all you do the one true God who holds up the breath of life in the palm of his hand and makes possible all your days. He is the one who sent this hand and inscribed the message on the wall. And this is what the message says. Many, many tickle parson. And this is where it gets interesting. Here's a little commentary. This cryptic wordplay that we see on the wall is short and sweet. But it simply means this. Numbered are your days, you have been weighted and found deficient, and your kingdom will be divided. And then we see in verse 26, it gives us an interpretation of exactly what that means. Then let's skip down to verse 29. True to his word, Belshazzar gave the order, and Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain placed around his neck, and king proclaimed that he ascend in rank and privilege to be the third highest ranking ruler in the kingdom. And here's the interesting thing, that that very night under the cloak of darkness, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king of Babylonia, was killed, then Darius the Mede, in his 62nd year, gained control of the kingdom. And that's where our scripture will end this evening out of Daniel chapter 5. We see a few topics in this. A few topics can be things like, uh, we see the pride of a king. We see the pride of Nebuchadnezzar a little bit earlier in the book, and now we see the pride of Belshazzar. We see things like success, that Daniel and his three compadres really have the same, uh, really success in all their stories, that they're being faithful to God, and he's continuing to watch over them. And that leads us into another theme, that God is sovereign. Uh, he's sovereign over what happens to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's, he's sovereign over the nation. He actually even uses a pagan king for his glory. And so we see that the big idea of this message really is that God is sovereign over all success and also over all failure. And really, I think we can take away that when we fail or lose the successes in our life, we can check our pride and take faith in God's sovereignty. So that's going to lead us really into a few talking points in our podcast tonight. While the previous chapter detailed Nebuchadnezzar learning important lessons about God's sovereignty and power, Belshazzar in this story, has yet to learn these lessons. The king misuses the gold and silver goblets from the temple. He praises idols for their creation, and his wives and his concubines attest to how extravagant he is. We see that in verse 2-4. through four. But God interrupts this decadence with the fingers of a human hand writing on the wall in verse 5. And this means of communication is super significant because even apart from any human representation or instrument, the Lord was able to vindicate his name and the holiness of Israel's sacred vessels, even when they were misused. And that's really interesting in Daniel chapter 5. We also, in this also, go back to the theme originally of Daniel, actually going back to Genesis, that we see that whenever we're prideful, whenever we live outside of God's purpose, we become like an animal. And that's exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, that he God had a purpose for him. He lived outside of that purpose because he was living under his pompous pride and about that he was the world leader and that he had conquered uh, the nation of Israel. But we actually remember back in the garden whenever a serpent comes to Adam and Eve and we know that they're supposed to be above the animals and subdue and rule over them. And we see that they actually lower themselves and become like an animal and take the fruit and they craft clothes for themselves, and they go out and hide. And really, that really uh, scripture between Genesis and Daniel, 
we really have to keep that in mind here, that whenever we don't live out God's purpose, we become like an animal. That also leads us to another thought, really, about this writing on the wall, that once again, we see a pagan ruler, pride needs to be dealt with. First in the book, we see Nebuchadnezzar. Second, we see Belshazzar's. And we can worship the one true God and still fall into uh, traps of finding security or refuge in a ruler. Maybe we do this in our own context. Maybe, uh, maybe we put too much faith in political power or the president or, or being a Democrat or Republican. But the reality is that God is the ruler. He's sovereign over everything, and we need to place our trust in that. That God deals with this prideful ruler with three words, many, tekel, and parson. That Daniel interprets the first to mean that God determines the length of the king's reign. And God has said that his time is up. Imagine if you're King Belshazzar, you have Daniel in front of you, and he says, your king, your kingship, your rule, it's over. The word is used twice, and it's also used in a story that we know well. It's used in the story of Joseph, as it's recorded in Genesis 41-32. And this is what that verse says. It says, The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Again, talking about God and his sovereignty there. The second word, tekel, Daniel interprets to mean that God has evaluated Belshazzar and found him to be an insufficient king that his pride would leave him without the ability to recognize God's sovereignty. Because the reality is, we get to this third word that Daniel interprets, in that he actually foretells that his kingdom is going to be split. That each of these meanings actually builds on the other one before it. That Belshazzar's power, time, and value are all determined by God. And who's in control of that at the end of the day? Well, God is because he's sovereign. That is a huge lesson we can take away, actually, and look at our present time today whenever we maybe turn on the news or fear what we've heard on the radio or what we see in social media, that at the end of the day, God is sovereign, and he will only allow things to continue so long because he is just, he is righteous, and all things will be made right. He sets the world back to rights in his own time. So we need to be aware that he is sovereign and things are under his hand and his control. Another interesting thought that I had when I looked at this is, think about someone that you know really well. I know that uh, I have a four-year-old daughter, and she's actually been practicing writing her name uh, at nighttime. And uh, her name is Emery, so she carefully practices uh, drawing out her E, her M, her second E, her R, and her Y, and she's so proud of it when she gets done. And it's been so fun getting to watch her learn this, just being dad and watching her do it. Uh, or she does it with mom, or whenever she shows it off maybe to a grandparent. But the interesting thing is I would know her handwriting absolutely anywhere because I've spent time with her and I know her. And think about it too. Think about maybe your spouse or maybe a loved one. Whenever you get a handwritten note by them, even if they didn't have their name attached to it, you would know the handwriting because you spent time with that person. You know what it looks like. You know the uh, the details they use maybe... Uh, they curve their Y a certain way, or, or maybe, uh, maybe they have bubbly letters. I don't, I don't know, but we, we do know uh, that we can usually tell people's handwriting by uh, spending time with them. And we see that in this story, too. Imagine that you're in this king uh, court, and you see this handwriting on the wall. And how did Daniel know it was God's? 
Well, it's because Daniel could interpret this because he had spent time with God. He knew he wrote it. The wise men in Belshazzar's court probably could actually read the words, but they couldn't interpret them because they didn't know the one who wrote it. They didn't know the author. And that's a really interesting point to make in the story, is that we have to know the author's handwriting in order to interpret our life before us. And the handwriting on the wall, man, does it tell us that in life. Also an interesting thing is sometimes it takes having our most precious possessions taken from us to gain perspective on what really matters. I want you to think about uh, someone that we all know pretty well. I want you to think of the cyclist Lance Armstrong. Uh, think about him, how influential he was. I mean, he was like the beast of literally the Tour de France every year. I mean, nothing had been seen like him before. But think about actually back in 2012... It was found out that actually he was doping. And what they actually found out was that Lance Armstrong actually had led one of the most sophisticated doping programs the sport had ever seen. And what this reminds us of is things like this, that phrases like God will not be mocked and that idols eventually fall. But he also noted that even though Armstrong had lost his reputation... Uh, his Tour de France victories, his well-cultivated image as a hero, and perhaps even his money, he still had a chance in Christ to lose everything. And in doing so, he might actually gain everything, which is Christ. Think about it. Our greatest failures often have the potential to lead us back to God. Usually crisis does that in our life. And then through the crisis, we actually can acknowledge and own our failures, and God blesses them. So we look at stories like this and we're really challenged that uh, maybe, do, maybe God does his best work in our failure. And weirdly enough in the story, Belshazzar is impressed with Daniel's skill and clothes him with purple. He gives him a gold chain around his neck and he proclaims him as the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But Daniel's words apparently don't make too much of an impression because the king responds by continuing in on his festivities instead of repenting before God. But just as God has throughout the book, he will bring down the prideful and reckon to those who disregard his sovereignty. And so I hope some of these thoughts have been helpful as we've kind of looked at Daniel chapter 5. I know that another thing I think as we kind of wrap up our podcast tonight is that it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar had great wisdom of the God of Israel, of Yahweh. We see Belshazzar have great wisdom insights to God, and he has a lot of head knowledge about it, but could it perhaps be that both of them did not know God in their heart? They knew of him, but they didn't know him in their heart. And maybe as we look to this, maybe we need to evaluate that in our life as well. Maybe we know a lot about God, but do we really, really know him? I think that Daniel chapter 5 actually has us ask that as well. And lastly, I think another good point in this to make as we wrap up tonight is that we look at kings being in control of, of kingdoms and peoples, literally from building 10-story statues of themselves, literally going all the way then to uh, being powerful and throwing men uh, into fiery furnaces. 
But could it perhaps be that we're the biggest ruler in our life and not allowing God to do his work in our heart? Maybe we need to kill the king of ourselves in our heart and allow God to do his work. And maybe that's how we can live a life of integrity in today's world. So I hope this this chat, this talk on Daniel chapter 5 has been helpful. Join us next week for week 6 in the book of Daniel as we have three weeks left. Hope you've enjoyed tonight. If you have any questions, make sure you drop them on our Facebook page uh, or in Anchor. And I hope that you're richly blessed uh, through this uh, book of Daniel series that we've been doing over the last few weeks. Have a great night.